I'm going to pray and delve into Isaiah chapter 9 for a bit, but I want to begin by telling you kind of a confession. It's been a really heavy week for me. Um, I think it's probably good once in a while for us as pastors to show you that we're just like you. We have struggles and pains and doubts and fears and all those things too. And this is, it was one of those weeks where I just could not get Christmassy. You know, even though I really wanted to, I just was feeling this burden of sadness. And there's, you know, a few things that happened. Um, there is a tragedy in um, one of our families connected to my family. And it was, um, it was just hard for me to swallow. Um, and yet I realized, hey, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. I should be able to get past this, but I couldn't. I ended up going to bed at 2.30 in the morning, several, not, several you know, early mornings. Um, could, not, could not get past some of the aching and the sadness. And, um, and then just, just, just yesterday, um, I, I heard about the loss of another dear person who is at our church in Dallas, uh, Park City's Prez, that Jay and I were very close to, and we unexpectedly heard of the passing of a dear friend there, and it was just breaking again. Why, why am I sharing this? Because I think I, like you, need hope. And we need constant reminders of what Jesus brings to us and gives us in the Advent. So let's pray for a moment. Father, I ask that you will fill us with real hope and joy in the midst of the sadnesses and the brokennesses, the brokenness that's there. Lord, my heart feels weak and heavy today, and yet I know that there is a light that dawns in the darkness and a peace that surpasses all the world's grief. And I know that you have come to give us joy, and not just temporary joy, but joy everlasting. And my prayer from my heart this morning, my own little ones and everyone in this room, is that you would actually give us a greater vision of Jesus, your Son. Give us eyes to see Him better. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, let me continue with that theme for a moment. When I was growing up in Teaneck, New Jersey, 15 minutes outside of New York City, our street, our main street in Teaneck, had a couple of places that just never shut down. You know, like businesses come and go, but then there are a couple things that you just knew you could count on. One was the movie theater, the Cedar Lane movie theater, and the other one was Bischoff's, our own ice cream parlor. And it was the old style, like from the 40s when most of the homes in Teaneck were built. They had the counter, the guy, the guy wore a little hat, you know, and they served floats and banana splits at the counter. And it was old school, old style ice cream parlor. And so even years later, right, I went to high school in the late 80s and and, 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 you know, kids would go in there and just love Bischoff's. Their dream was to work at Bischoff's. I never got to work at Bischoff's because all my friends beat me to it. And so, you know, they could only hire so many high school students. But um, this past week, I got a note from some friends and said, Bischoff's is closing. This is it. 
the end of the year, the owners have finally given in and they have said, okay, it's time. I have no idea how many years. It's been easily 60 years, 70 years, something like that. And it's changed hands in the family a couple times when Bischoff's is closing. But then this is what happened. I started getting a stream of uh, Facebook messages from friends from school from years ago, some who weren't actually friends, some who were mean, and some who have grown in maturity and God has softened them. And, and they said, man, hey, we got to go one last time. Can we meet up? Can we go one last time wherever you're from? And then a few people said, I'm in LA, can't make it. And then I said, sadly, I'm in Dallas. I'm not going to be able to make it back to Jersey. But please take some pictures. And I'm so glad that you're meeting. But in the midst of that thread, you know what started happening? They started connecting. And then one started speaking of stories and said, man, I'm so... By the way, these are friends from Catholic school. St. Anastasia's on Cedar Lane that I attended for several years. Not because I was Catholic, but because it was a better alternative for my parents to what, what was being offered. So I had lots of Irish friends and Italian friends and lots of Catholic, you know, Catholic friends growing up. But in the midst of that thread, I started hearing about sadnesses. Like this was one line. Stacy wrote, just buried my parents, both of them in the last two years, and did their funeral at St. A's. And then I could hear the loneliness. And then another friend said, yeah, just did that for my dad as well. And said, we really need to get together. I think it'd be good for us. In the midst of some of these kind of sadnesses, I feel overwhelmed and I'm sure you do too with the things that come your way. Remember that tragedy I mentioned? Seven-month-old baby. I just couldn't get over it this week. Seven-month-old healthy baby. The parents lost that little one this week and... Um, I didn't have words to say, and they didn't have words to say. There was no response for days. But I kept thinking about what our lives are about in the midst of sadnesses and pain and things you just can't get sleep over. This is the background of Isaiah 9. I want you to hear chapter 8. I'm going to pull out a few verses. This is probably not going to be the most cohesive sermon, but I hope it Hope it will be for you with the main ideas of hope in the midst of our sadnesses and despair that Jesus brings. Listen to chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. So just before chapter 9. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, utter darkness. That's the situation or background of Isaiah 9. You know, as you delve into Israel's history, what's going on is a nation that's gone away from the Lord, but in the background is also a king in David's line named Ahaz. You ever heard of Ahaz? Ahaz was not a good king. He was wicked. 
He was of the line of David and meant to continue the dynasty of David and the throne of David. But he was a bad king. He trusted in his own wisdom and did not listen to the Lord or his prophet Isaiah. And that is to whom Isaiah was sent to speak the word of the Lord. Here's the context. Just very quick church history, okay? Ahaz is in the south in Judah. The northern kingdom, because there's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom has formed, is, there's a, two wicked kings are joining in alliance to come and attack the southern kingdom. And so you know what Ahaz in the south, David's throne, decides to do? Well, I'm going to make a strategic alliance. And do you know who he does that with? With their greatest enemy. The greatest problem, Assyria. And so God says, I will show you a sign. Just ask for it. Just submit. And you know what Isaiah says? No. I'm king. I know what to do. I know how to maneuver. I, I understand kingly strategy and things. I'm going to align with Assyria to fight these northern kingdoms before they come and attack us. Syria and and, and, and another kingdom. And so Isaiah comes and says, don't do it. God is not going to allow these northern kingdoms to conquer you, but don't align yourself with Assyria because Assyria is a pagan country who's worshiping idols. Don't do it. Don't align with, with these people. And do you know what Ahaz says? I know better. I'm smarter. I understand. Hey, Isaiah, you're a religious man. I'm a king. Don't tell me how to control political dynasties and how to control uh, keeping the throne and all that. And so he does what's right in his own eyes, just like we read in the Judges. And you know what happens, friends? Those northern, uh, the northern kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the, the, the two alli- the alliances, they don't come and conquer Judah. You know who conquers Judah? Assyria. Foolishness. Lack of faith. Lack of hearing God's word. Lack of hearing the prophet. That is the background. It's, again, distress, hungry, enraged, contemptuous, distress and darkness, gloom, anguish, thick darkness. And it's in that context that Isaiah 9 begins with, but there will be no gloom. It's in the midst of that thick, utter darkness that Isaiah in chapter 9 brings a ray of sunlight. It's like sunrise right after the darkest night. That's what Isaiah 9 is. I I have to ask you a personal question. Look, we're all here on Sundays with our pretty faces and well-dressed and, you know, looking cool and uh, everything's fine, but everything's not fine, right? I mean, you have sadnesses and you have things that you're worried about and you have people that you're worried about and things that are not right in your life and things that are not physically well and spiritually well. Darkness. Spiritual darkness, maybe physical darkness. And I'm asking you to ask yourself this question, examine your hearts. Where are you looking to for help? Are you trying to do it yourself? Trying to figure it out yourself? Are you trying to do it with money? 
Are you trying to look to the world and the wisdom of the world? Remember Ahaz. God was warning him and God was telling him, I will show you a sign. Trust me, don't align with Assyria. The northern, those northern conquerors from the northern kingdom will not take over you. Just trust me. But he did it. And then Israel got conquered by Assyria. When I was a student in seminary, I worked for a wealthy Philadelphia landowner who was just outside of Philly. And I hated working on that property, but I needed the money. So I worked the land for him because he was getting older. He had over 100 acres just outside of Philly, and his name was Mr. Bast. I actually grew to love him and his wife dearly because they were older. Their children were far away. They had grown and things. So I would come, you know, often to come and work the land and mow his fields and, and uh, cut the thorn bushes. There are thorn bushes all over this property. I can't tell you how many times I got cut fingers, cut legs, you know, thorns through the sneakers and the shoes because they were that strong, right? Well, every once in a while, we would get a beautiful snowfall in Pennsylvania. And I would just ache to go over there and just see all that land in pristine beauty. But I knew that there were thorns under that snow. But for that day, for that moment, it was covered and it was beautiful. And there was a hope. There was a hope. It's like there's beauty in the midst of all the prickliness and sadness and all the hard work and things like that. Listen, what are the consequences for Israel and for us because of the promise. You know what the promise is, right? It's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This was the sign that God wanted to give Ahaz that he didn't want to listen to. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Miraculously, God would preserve the throne. God would keep the dynasty of David alive through a virgin who had never been married. God was going to accomplish his promises and keep, keep David's throne going forever. Remember the promise to David? There will always be a man on your throne. There will never be an end to your line, David, man after my own heart. That was God's promise to David, but Ahaz has squandered it. Ahaz has lost the throne, lost the dynasty. Israel's in distress, hungry, enraged, all this kind of stuff, right? But the promise and the sign is the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What are the consequences? I'm going to tell you what the gospel does for you in this sign, in this baby. The answer comes to Israel in the form of a baby who is going to be in David's line, born of a virgin. And here are the consequences. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly so you can hear three consequences. Glory instead of contempt. Light instead of darkness and joy instead of sadness. So let me begin with 
chapter 9 again, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Glory instead of contempt. Do you know that when the Assyrians attacked, they started with those very locations? The land of Neb- Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee. And guess what? Matthew chapter 4, 12 to 17. I'm highlighting that so you'll hear it. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17 highlights the ministry of Jesus in that very place. Galilee of the Gentiles, the land beyond the Jordan, That is where what used to be contempted now is full of light and joy. You see the reversal? It's a great reversal. What was once a place of contempt, now there's glory instead because of what Jesus does and fulfills in fulfills this prophecy through his ministry. That's Matthew 4. Light instead of darkness, verse 2. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The sun rises because of Jesus. You know, is there darkness in your life? You know, I'm talking about not just a little bit of sadness. I'm talking about things like depression. I'm, thinking, I'm talking about things that linger with you and it's just darkness. You know, it's like you don't know how to talk to people. You don't know what to do next. You're just in thick and utter darkness. But spiritually speaking, that happens to us too because there's an enemy. There's a great spoiler of joy and his name is Satan. He hates us. He wants you to be unhappy. He wants you to be in despair. But here are the promise. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The day shall break and the shadows flee away because the true light of the world will come. The darkness, what does John's gospel say? The darkness will not overcome it. Friends, you you need to hear the promises of God. You may be in a bad spot and in darkness right now, but hear this. Jesus is the one who said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And the darkness will not overcome the light. So here's another reversal. The third reversal is joy instead of sadness and anguish joy instead of sadness and anguish let me look at verses uh verse three you have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil you know two of the great moments for celebration for israel is at the time of harvest and when there is conquering going on and they get the spoils of those whom they've conquered, and they're rejoicing in that. Harvest and um, rejoicing in the plunder when they divide the spoil. And look what Isaiah the prophet is saying. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. 
Do you remember what the angels said to the shepherds in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2? I bring you good news of great what? Some of you are, like me, wallowing in our sadness. Because we're trying to fix it ourselves, because we're trying to figure it out ourselves. Listen, especially young people in the room, I'm going to tell you something that maybe you've heard a hundred million times, but I'm going to say it again. You can keep trying on your own, but you're never going to find a joy that comes from outside of you. Unless you go outside of you. And that's a joy that you can't put words on and money on and numbers on. Can't grasp it. It's too great. Joy instead of sadness and anguish. Well, let me go on. Um, I have to ask this application question. Is your life today characterized by joy? And how about for you already believers? Is your life characterized by great joy? Come on. What's it like inside your houses? What's it like inside the car when you're driving by yourself? Is your life characterized by joy and by great joy? If not, I'm telling you this not to condemn you. I'm saying this to tell you that there is a way to find that again. There's a way to grab hold of that again. There's a way to truly be happy and to find joy again. And it's in the person of Jesus. John 15, 11, That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's Jesus' words. I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. By the way, do you know that every believer is supposed to have joy? It is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, long-suffering, gentleness, faith. Joy is a mark of the child of God. That's why I'm asking the question, is your life characterized by joy? You know, despite the circumstances, no one's happy all the time. But you still can have joy. Because you know God's overcome anything bad that can ever come your way. And because He ultimately has your future secured. Let me give you a couple of reasons that the Scripture gives in chapter 9 for, um, you know, for, for the joy that Isaiah talks about. For these great reversals. Glory instead of contempt. Light instead of darkness. Joy instead of... Um, Joy instead of sadness and, and all those things. What, what are some of the reasons? Verses 4 and 5 says this. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor you have broken. So first, Isaiah says oppression will end Israel, people of God. And let me say that to you again. Listen, the evil one can't oppress you forever. Greater is he who is in you than he is who is in the world. Tell Satan to leave in the name of Jesus. 
And he has to because he's not stronger than Jesus. The second thing it says in verse 5 is, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is that? Well, first oppression will end and then wars will cease. Israel, listen, there's hope coming. Oppression will end and wars will cease. In fact, the very instruments and garments will be burned in the fire by the victor, by the king. But we do not find these three above blessings, you know, the reversals that I talked about inside of ourselves or by finding it in the world or by working or searching harder. It is only outside of us and outside of this world and the true source is God himself. So why aren't you going to God? Why aren't you searching His Word? Why aren't you trusting Him more than trusting yourself? These are the answers to why you're lacking some of that and living in the gloom, living in the darkness, living in the anguish. I want to tell you three notes and quick notes, and then I'm going to talk about the four descriptions of this child. The three notes about this passage that I want you to come across to, to kind of think about is: Did you notice that it's written as a prophecy in the past tense? Did you notice that? He's talking about future things as a prophet, Isaiah is, because he's telling uh, uh, Israel, have hope. I know you're in distress and hunger and you're in rage and you're contemptuous of the king and of God and all these things, right? You're living in gloom, but there will be hope. But then he speaks in chapter 9 as if it's already happened. He's talking in verses 1, 2, and 3, you can notice It's speaking as if it's in the past tense. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. Why is he talking in past tense about a future prophecy? Well, it's actually a prophetic idiom that Hebrew prophets used to use almost as if to encourage the people to hear this as they're hearing it. It's as good as done. It's certain. It's going to happen. And that's why Isaiah speaks of it as in a past tense. When God says something, he's going to do it. When God promises something, it's as good as done, right? to show the certainty of the promises made. The second thing is, a child is to be born for them. You probably noticed that right away, right? Look at Isaiah 7, 14, which I read earlier. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It is for them. The child to be born is for them. And you know what Isaiah is trying to say? All our blessings are going to come vicariously through this child. It's for you. 
Israel, and for you, people of God right here at Trinity, God has sent His Son for your saving, for your redemption, for you, unto you, right? Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it's for us, and we are vicariously getting the blessings through his work and through his life. And the third thing is, the child is spoken of with a kingly language. The government will be upon his shoulder. So this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary baby. This is going to be the child king who is of the throne of David whose kingdom will have no end. So there's a kingly language right from the beginning in this passage. The government will be upon his shoulders. Now quickly, the four things that describe this king child, and I want you to dwell on this not just this morning, but at home and throughout this Advent. Will you promise me that you'll do this? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 should be imprinted on your foreheads and on your hearts. You'll hear it in the Messiah, and you'll hear it everywhere, but you need to look at each line and think about it. First, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. So this child, this hope, who's going to do the reversal for you and Israel, this child is going to be called the Wonderful Counselor. You know what that literally means? He is going to have supernatural wisdom as our king supernatural wisdom. In fact, if you translate that in Hebrew, it actually means something or someone supernatural. Wonderful counselor literally means the king that's not going to guide you wrong because he knows everything from beginning to end. You know why this is given to us? It's really so that we can contrast Ahaz. Ahaz was the opposite. He was foolish and not wise. And we can be foolish when we trust in ourselves and we do what's right in our own eyes. But then here is the king who is the wonderful counselor endowed with supernatural wisdom and on high. I want to read for you um, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah was also a prophet. I want you to hear this verse, Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Wonderful counselor. He will not guide you wrong. He knows beginning from end. He knows your life. He knows your detours. He knows what you need to be happy. Will you trust him? to be your wonderful counselor, or are you going to trust yourself? There is an application question for you. Secondly, mighty God. He, this child, will be God Almighty Himself, God the warrior. Isaiah is giving testimony to the divinity of the born Messiah child. You can't help but think about John 1, verse 1. Do you know that verse? It's another good one to memorize. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is not just 
someone that seems to be God, this child. He is Almighty God, the warrior king. He is the great God. Thirdly, the eternal father. Now, this is a bit confusing if you've never really studied this. So is Jesus the father? Is Jesus given the name as son, but he's really also the father? Is Jesus the son a mode or just a manifestation of the father? So why does it say eternal father? Well, in the Old Testament, kings were often thought of as the fathers of their nation. David was a spiritual king and a political king, right? He cared for them spiritually. He led them in psalms and praise, in worship in the temple. Kings were often thought of as the father. And this is two aspects I'm going to give you. One is the son is also the one who has all the embodiments of the Father and all the love of the Father, who is the one who is waiting for prodigals to return to hug them and say, come, come home. Jesus is the entry point. And so He is the Father. He is the King for our lives and for, our, for the people of God. And finally, he is the prince of peace. I'm not going to say a lot about this because this is still coming up. I, um, the, the prince of peace is going to come up on another Sunday. And so I'm going to leave some of that for them. But I want to give you this, this lasting um, thought. In this world of turmoil... Jesus really is the only one who can give you peace. But the peace comes at a cost because it's going to cost him his life. And it's a very surprising thing. God the Father sends the Son so that there will finally be peace between the enemy and the descendants of the woman. So that there will be peace in the midst of all the strife and all the fighting and the chaos between the spoiler and the descendants of God's children. And there's only one who can bring that peace and that's the ultimate descendant of the woman who will come but at a cost. He will bring peace. And the scriptures say this all throughout, of his government and peace there will be no end. By the way, Micah chapter 5 is where we're going to dwell when we think about peace in a, in a week or two. So that's why I said I'm not going to dive into it too much here, but I want you to hear again the name, the characteristic that's described of this child. He is finally the one who's going to give you peace. Look, I know, I know life is hard, and you're living without peace. You're restless, right? You're struggling. And you want to be at peace. And the whole scriptures point to Jesus as the only one who's going to have and give peace forever. My closing question to our church during this season and through this passage is this. How long are you going to put Jesus outside of your life? 
and not let him in and not surrender to him. The whole scriptures give us the answer and the solution. I've shared this line with you before, but this is what many of us need to do today. It's a great poetic line that I've memorized, and I I hope you'll hear it again. Lay your deadly doings down. Down at Jesus' feet. Rest in Him and Him alone. And then you'll be gloriously complete. Maybe you're trying too hard today. Maybe you're taking on burdens that you do not need to carry. Maybe you're trying to fix everything on your own. But the only hope is the one that came in a manger. Can you imagine Isaiah standing in the back of the manger in a corner as everyone comes to worship? Isaiah the prophet stands back and says, See, I told you. I told you. This is the one. This is the one that I spoke about. See, I told you it's all true. Will you come and bow and worship? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for just allowing us to look into this passage again and um, to be reawoken of the Christ child, the answer to all our hopes and fears. Lord, I, I pray for the reversal in our own lives and I ask God that you will give us joy. Give us peace. Give us light in the midst of our darkness and remove the gloom and bring glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.